I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is an unusual type of human. He is a spiritual neuroscientist. Dr. Rick Hansen is a psychologist, a senior fellow of the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center. He began meditating in 1974 and hasn't turned back since. He followed a spiritual path next to his science background, which led him to be the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Rick is a New York Times best-selling author. His books include Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, The Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nature. He was published in more than 29 languages and sold close to a million copies in English alone. Rick's weekly newsletter is distributed for free to 180,000 subscribers, and his online programs have scholarships available for those with financial needs. Rick is a well-known expert on positive neuroplasticity, our ability to use our brains to make our lives better. But in my personal view, he is also an expert on how to make our world better. What a pleasure to have him with me today. I think you can already tell how much of a huge fan I am of Rick's work. Hey there, Mo. Hey, Rick. Hi. I'd start by saying first, thank you for the time. And mm. thank you for responding so quickly. I think we reached out like 10 days ago and you were like, yeah, yeah I like this. This is a good idea. So thank you for that. And, and context is I'm on sabbatical. So, oh. yeah, so it's, it's actually an, an implicit acknowledgement of you and, and your show oh that God, I wanted to you. do this. My God, thank you. How, what, can we talk about the sabbatical? Actually, that's a very good start. I need a sabbatical. What, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, well, I think we all need a pause. And in my case, I suspect yeah. you might relate to it, given your own background. I've had my pedal to the metal. It feels really like since I was about six years old and definitely mm-hmm. throughout my mm-hmm. adulthood and, and intensely the last 20 years or so. So it just felt right. My inner being started to say that I needed to uh, disengage from that machinery of doing. And as a mm-hmm. detail, it's not so much that it's stressful because it's accompanied by positive emotions of eudaimonic fulfillment and so forth, but there's drivenness in it and pressure in it which our evolved hunter-gatherer body is not adapted to as a natural way of life, even though people can kind of sort of sustain it for a long time. And I just started to experience that that there was something not quite right about it and something I wanted to disengage from. And then in my own personal practice, it's a lot about really kind of a granular present moment awareness of subtleties of craving or not craving, (laughs) suffering Mm -hmm. or not suffering, pressure or not pressure, contentment or discontentment. 
And so for all those reasons, I just knew this was a time to clear some space here for reading, renewal, rest, yeah. just what's it like to not have more things to do in a day than you've got time to do them in? That's what I'm exploring now. That's such, so timely, Rick, because I have to tell you, I, I struggle with this myself. I was talking to my dear friend and a wonderful being, Matthew Ricard. Oh, beautiful, him. Matthew. Amazing, yeah. amazing. My too. And, and he was complaining like you and I about the 20 years after he you know, published his book. And it's, it's shook, it hit me that many of us who have done some work and who have understood really, really deeply that mm -hmm. there is a need for being that is as big, if not bigger than the need for that, that mindless doing, but we still get caught into that, uh, you called it the machine of doing. And, yeah. and I, I find that interesting, why we're not able to break out of it. And, and, you know, and, and I, do, I say that with love and gratitude and respect. You know, why you would even acknowledge me when this is the time for being? Why, why do we get back to doing? I just don't understand that. Well, I think that's a very deep inquiry at a lot of levels. I mean, there are the cultural forces, the systemic forces. A typical hunter-gatherer, you may know, manages to take care of all of their bodily needs in about four hours of effort a day. Yeah. The rest of it, they're hanging out. And you think about us modern types who need to work 10, 12 or more hours a day to just yeah. take care of everything, given our job and our commute and everything else. So, you know, there are external forces. But then internally, of course, we have the biological machinery of foraging, in effect, you know, searching for something new to want. And that was regulated objectively by the conditions of living in the Serengeti Plains or the mm -hmm. south of France mm -hmm. in a recent ice age. And so uh, currently, though, we don't have external constraints <laughs> on the machinery of foraging. So there's that tendency that's quite baked into our biology. And then you have individual factors in which people, as in my case, I just doing was for me the way to get myself out of the box of my childhood. And then it became a path to accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. And I was rewarded for it. I'm, you know, there are no villains here in regard to this particular thing. But it's so easy for the mind-brain process to get caught up in subtleties of drivenness. It wants to drive. And if we don't regulate those appetites in effect and find balance for them, they will just take us over. And the world is very happy to reward people like you and me for working 60, 80, or 100 hours a week. Mm. And, and that rewards just like you always talk about rewiring the brain, basically, yeah. you know, it becomes, those neurons become very strong. They become sort of your confidence, That's right. your habit, and so on. Yeah. But before, yeah. before we go into any of this, you mentioned your childhood. And I need to, to introduce you to my audience, which I'm sure know you but I'll introduce you from my heart, from where I see you. Yeah. Uh, so Rick, Rick, to me, is someone who is sort of scientifically driven, but anchored in wisdom. I mean, mm -hmm. somehow, is that the right way to, to, to describe it? Sometimes you, you say you call yourself scientifically grounded, but informed by wisdom. I, I, I believe mm -hmm. you're very anchored in wisdom, and you mm -hmm. talk about it from a science point of view, which to me, of course, to my heart and to my mind, is the ultimate combination, right? So, so yeah. I love how you can bring something that is so spiritual, like in your last book, uh, you, mm -hmm. you know, Neurodharma, and you yeah. go and you talk about, no, no, hold on, there is neuroscience to this. There are oh, things yeah. you can do from a neuroscience point of view. 
how did you end up in that place? I mean, did you start as a neuroscientist and then became, I, I believe more Buddhist tradition is, is your passion and drive. Did you start as a scientist and became more spiritual or did you start spiritual and became more scientist? How did it work? I started with suffering. <laughs> <laughs> great place to start, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, my family was loving and decent, but for lots of reasons having to do with uh, a lack of empathy in my, in my parents, and also being very young, going through school, and kind of a shy, dorkish person by temperament, oh, led man. to a lot of, <laughs> maybe people can relate, <laughs> a lot of feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness and hopelessness and misery. And so like, that's kind of where I started. And I wanted to figure out how to get out of that box, like a lot of people do. And that then led me in college into psychology and the human potential movement in the early 70s which uh -huh. then exposed me to the wisdom of the contemplative traditions of the world, particularly the Eastern traditions. And of course, mm -hmm. there are wisdom traditions in the native people, the indigenous cultures, which mm -hmm. I think is very important to acknowledge and respect. Buddhism spoke a lot to me, particularly in its clarity and pragmatism and simplicity, which mm -hmm. fast forward is very in rapport with science. And so then in my, I became a clinical psychologist. And at that point I was bringing together two streams, we could say psychology and the wisdom traditions. And then about 20 years ago, I think there was a critical mass of knowledge about the brain that just hit a tipping point. And at that point, I dove extremely deeply into that territory. I don't describe myself as a scientist. I, I describe myself, I would say, as attempting to be scholarly, with, but <laughs> okay. I'm fundamentally an applications person. I'm a translation person. So to net it all out, if you imagine three circles, psychology, contemplative wisdom, and science, and neuroscience especially, the intersection of those three circles is full of promise and insight and incredibly cool stuff. And that's where I try to live. And I think of it to kind of finish, that we can know ourselves in two ways, right? We can know ourselves from the outside in, objectively through science, in, including in terms of our own neurology. And we can know ourselves from the inside out through psychology and wisdom, subjectively, experientially. And the meeting of those two is what I think in a term could be called neurodharma. But most fundamentally, it's like, why would someone not want to understand themselves in that way? Why would they not want to bring those two together? They're not in conflict with each other. They're two ways of seeing clearly. It's interesting that the root of the word for Buddha is to see, Buddha mm. is to know. Mm. The root of the word for science is to know, same thing, right? It's just two different ways of knowing, but both of them give us tremendous power to understand ourselves deeply and then influence who we are becoming for the better over time. So I, I believe that the more we, the more you learn, you learn. I don't think that it's, that it's correct to say the more we know because eventually what we know is very little anyway. But the more you learn, the more you realize that the, that science and wisdom yeah. are one and the same, if you want. They are, they are different methods to achieve, to arrive at the same point, if you want. Yeah, exactly. But, but then, but then the, the differences between them are so stark mm. in that method to the point that sometimes they sort of, you know, demonize each other. So, so yeah. science would, would criticize wisdom for not having the rigor of, right. you know, um, uh, of, of proof and, and yeah. wisdom would criticize science for missing out on a lot of the things that are measurable, which are highly needed in the scientific method. 
And yeah. one of the things I've seen you do, which really, really impressed me, and I think, you know, make a big difference is you, you use what you call your personal lab or something like that, that mm. people can actually observe their own selves as a lab, you know, what, what's happening inside me as a lab, and then use that as a proof instead of depending on science as a proof. Right. It's really interesting the ways in which scientism has become a kind of dogmatism that's actually anti-scientific. You may be familiar with the saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, which is a fundamentally scientific attitude. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there are also many, many things like, Mo, I'm sure you love someone. You probably love Mm -hmm. many people. There's no scientific study in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And you know you love them. Mm -hmm. There's no study in the world that can prove that you love them. There's... Exactly. And it's, or, even, uh, or even explain what that love is in a, in a scientific way or explain exactly if, if love for me is the same as love for you. It's yeah. really crippled. Yeah. Science is totally crippled on the problem. So it's a kind of Gödel's theorem right there in the sense that here is something that is clearly true that is fundamentally unprovable within a scientific frame. And so I think a truly scientific attitude respects the bounds to the Big Bang universe, and then even inside the Big Bang universe, recognizes with some humility that there are many things that are outside its domain, including, for example, the domain of values and ethics. Science itself is is morally neutral. It's it's about establishing the investigation through investigation, a certain class of facts. But whether the facts are good or bad or how to use those facts, that is the domain of wisdom, really, and moral choice. So... Mm. And it is, it is certainly true, and this is my territory a lot, to use your mind to change your brain plausibly, to change your mind for the better. In other words, if we appreciate the ways in which our stream of consciousness is a mind-body process, two categorically distinct aspects, because experiences are intangible. They rest on flows of information through the nervous system. They, they exist, they're natural phenomena, but they're distinct from the physicality or the E equals MC squared, energy matter combination of things. So we have this mind-body process proceeding and the flows of experiences enlist underlying flows of physical neural activity and repeated patterns of neural activity leave lasting physical traces behind. So as you well know, because you know my stuff and you know science in general, we can use our minds deliberately in the laboratory of our own being to stimulate specific neural factors of various kinds that plausibly are beneficial. And through repeatedly stimulating them, we can strengthen them so that we can actually guide who we are becoming. And we can run little experiments that are relatively low risk inside our own mind. The riskier the intervention, the more evidence that is required for it. That's Mm -hmm. why to take vaccinations for COVID-19, there should be a high evidence base for that kind of intervention. But inside your own mind, to deliberately dwell, let's say, in experiences of loving someone or feeling loved or experiences of your own gritty determination to get through a hard day, and in so doing, plausibly heighten the internalization of those experiences as lasting physical changes in your brain, and then see the results. Stay with that experience for a breath or two or three and investigate the results. And if you get no results or bad results, all right, that's what your experiment told you. But on the other hand, if you get good results from it, that's real evidence. 
and it is it's evidence at your fingertips it's something that we can yeah. all we can all do yeah. so i i won't let you quickly through the the mind can change the brain and the brain can change the mind right? so, so this so you knew i was going oh, this is That's so right. profound but let me hit you first with the scientific question mm-hmm. around this yeah what is the mind is the mind different than the brain uh, people define that word in different ways the way it's typically meant in cognitive neuroscience and in psychology in general, it refers to information. So the function of the nervous system is to process information. That's its evolved function, originating in multi-celled creatures around 600 million years ago that needed to communicate, which is to say exchange information between their sensory and their motor systems. And so today, our most complex nervous system of all animals on earth is continually processing information. It's receiving signals, it's storing them, it's manipulating them, it's moving them around. And then some small fraction of that information processing is apparent to us as experiences. How information processing becomes the qualia, the experiences of the color red or the smell of cinnamon or the feeling of loving someone is still the hard problem, as it were. It's still... A lot of people are banging on that one. But meanwhile, it's presumed that it's a natural phenomenon, uh, that experiences are natural phenomena. I think of Copernicus establishing that the Earth orbited the sun. No one knew why it was, but it was pretty clear that it was a natural phenomenon. It wasn't God's finger pushing the Earth in its orbit around the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's presumed in science that our experiences are natural phenomena. So to finish it out, I define mind very simply and operationally as all the information in a nervous system. So we have a mind, a fruit fly has a mind at some level. And whether a fruit fly is a zombie or is actually, in some sense, having experiences of a very rudimentary sort, we we still don't know about that. But I'm real clear that cats and dogs and and even lizards and certainly monkeys are having experiences. Experiences are natural phenomena. So that's how I fundamentally define it. And I think that's a very useful, simple way of talking about it. And it's consistent with how others talk about it as well. You're very familiar, I'm sure, with the distinction between hardware and software. And yeah, computer metaphors can be overused, but still they're, they're, they're quite relevant here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that flow of experiences, that flow of information, if you want, yeah, yeah. is what shapes our brain. Now that is- because information must be represented. So information is intangible. It's immaterial in that sense of the word immaterial, but it must be represented by a material substrate. Like right now, the information that's flowing between you and me is represented by sound waves in my room, and then it's going through a microphone and is represented through electromagnetic waves. And, you know, then it goes out onto the internet and, you know, digitized and who knows what is happening there. You know vastly more about that stuff than I do. It's like magic. But anyway, and then so but there must be a substrate that's representing it, whether it's marks in a clay tablet 5000 years ago or chalk marks on them blackboard or a whiteboard, let's say, today, information must be represented by a physical substrate. In our bodies, the physical substrate that represents most of the information in it is the nervous system. You could argue that the immune system as well as the acquired immune system um, learns um, to develop antibodies to certain triggers. There is some information storage in the immune system as well. And you could argue as well that You know, there could be information storage and the somatic markers in the musculoskeletal system and so forth. But the larger point is that 
for our experiences of loving someone or hating someone, feeling good about ourselves or bad about ourselves, those experiences require an underlying pattern of neural activity to represent them. And it's a fact that the nervous system is designed to be changed by the information moving through it. In effect, we are designed to learn from our experiences. There's a negativity bias that makes us over-sensitized to negative experiences, typically. But in the broadest sense, we're designed to be, to be shaped by our experiences. So that means that our experiences require underlying flows of physical activity. And repeated patterns of physical activity in the nervous system leave traces behind. And that's the fundamental underlying physical process, the neurobiological basis of any kind of lasting learning, whether it's a child learning to walk instead of crawl or an adult learning to be more patient with that child who is now a teenager. <laughs> yeah, but, but that, that, that is so, so profound when you think about it, because what yeah. you're saying here is, again, if you use the analogy of software and hardware, yeah. the computer is sort of almost re changing its hardware based yeah. on the software that's running on it. So, so yeah. imagine imagine if you played a game on your PC 10 mm -hmm. times and then the PC said, you know what, I think I need a better memory chip for this and literally removed one memory chip and put another one in and basically changed its own wiring to, yeah. to be able to respond to that experience. And so yeah. th th this is when you're saying the mind shapes the brain, yes. you know, neuroplasticity in general. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about that? To me, this is my favorite part of neuroscience. Well, that's wonderful. So as you're familiar, so just for people in general too, plasticity simply means the capacity of something to be changed for better or worse. A lot of neuroplasticity or the broader term experience dependent neuroplasticity involves changing the brain for the worse, such as in the extreme <laughs> through things like trauma. Right. Yeah. And so the takeaway point is that we can deliberately relate to our experiences in certain ways to reduce the harmful changes in the brain through mindfulness and self-compassion and, and insight into their, the nature of all experiences on the one hand side, while at the same time, we can help ourselves grow a little and heal a little and learn a little every day. And that's an incredible opportunity. For us all. So as a child like you, and, and I have to say, every child mm -hmm. that I know today, you know, 60 years old, 70 years old, there is always an experience in our childhood that lasts with us. So you start as a young boy in school, you know, mm -hmm. thin glasses, being, uh, you know, yep. bullied a little. <laughs> and, and, President and of the dark club. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even believe that when you when you understand how far you've come in life. Right? But then, but then you actually deliberately used neuroplasticity to yeah. change your life, right? So which is which is an experience that I think a lot of people would benefit from understanding. Oh, I'm I'm very touched by where you're going with all this, Mo. And a turning point for me kind of marked two major events in a way. One when I was and I've written about both of them. One when I was six. Uh, years old, standing outside my my family's home in Illinois, while my dad, I think, was getting his postdoctorate in zoology and you know and so forth. And I was looking back at my house, the yellow light streaming through the windows. I'm on the edge of a cornfield. I'm looking out on the edge of the suburban development we were in, in 19 probably 1968, 
nine, no, no, I beg your pardon, 1958. I was six years old then. And I just looked out and I just knew that there was unhappiness in my home and it wasn't my fault. And there was nothing I could do to change it. It wasn't about me, but I had to deal with it. And out in the distance, I saw these twinkling lights and I thought that's where ultimately I belong and I just have to get there. And in that experience was a lot of self-awareness and a deep sense of, I had to get on my own side. I had to help myself. And the emotional quality of it was wistfulness. And I wasn't angry at what was happening in the home, but there was discernment about it, that it wasn't about me. It was separated from me. And I needed to be for myself because I was kind of on my own. And I, I think that fundamental position or stance that can start conceptually, but it becomes very emotional and visceral is absolutely fundamental to any kind of positive development. As Rabbi Hillel wrote, right? If you're not for yourself, who will be? And if not now, when? A second major turning point was in my teens. And I know I was about 15 because I was reading Dune at the time. And I identified with the main character of Paul Madib and because I was the same age. And that book is very much about learning broadly. It's about training, the Bene Gesserit path and many, many forms of personal development. And at that time, I was very unhappy. It seemed hopeless. You know, the past was terrible. The present was terrible. But it really came to me almost kind of suddenly that no matter how bad it was, like Paul Madib, I could learn a little every day. I could get a little less shy around girls. I could be a little more skillful with my parents. I could be less rattled by bullies. I could feel better about myself. I could grow and develop and heal a little bit every day. And that was profoundly hopeful, profoundly hopeful. No matter how bad the past has been or what the present is as it arises, we can always grow into the next minute in a useful way. And I think, you know, they say in Tibet, you may have heard this from Matu Ricard, that if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. I love that. I love that saying. It's, it yeah. is so hard. I don't know. It just captures your heart so much. If you Doesn't take it? care of the minutes, yeah, the years will take care of themselves. I know. But yeah. then I, I have to say, you know, Rick, when you talk about I can heal a little every day, yeah. Yeah. That is almost the opposite of what our Western, I don't know where it comes from, superhero movies or, you know, the promise of medicine that, you know, one minute and then you'll be better, or yeah. one pill and you'll be better. The trick here is that healing actually only happens a little every day, right? So, you know, again, there yeah. is another Buddhist saying about how the pond will only fill up one drop at a time, right? All right. Yeah, to quote the parable or the proverb, rather, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Oh, man. It's so beautiful. And it's a it drop. It's so beautiful. But, but, the, yeah. but then the little by little bit, and I know yeah. you're a, a huge advocate, you know, in hardwiring happiness, you mm. know, your work was entirely around it's little by little. It has to, you know, that healing process doesn't happen mm -hmm. over time. So yeah. to tell us a bit about that. So, you know, how, how does the shy boy go mm -hmm. from, I am in charge, I need to change this, okay? Mm -hmm. And I can actually, I have the power to change this. Yeah. You know, your model is called HEAL, H -E -A -A, yes. right? Mm -hmm. so, so how does that work? Oh, okay, great. It's really interesting how little attention is paid to the actual process of growing or learning broadly. And I mean, learning much more than book learning. I mean, 
somatic learning, emotional learning, life learning, social learning, even spiritual learning, motivational learning. How do you help yourself get motivated to do what's good for you that you don't actually want to do? Right? How do you help yourself shift in that way over time? And the fundamental process neuropsychologically has two necessary and sufficient steps. The first step is we must experience whatever we want to develop. So bringing it down to earth, if a person wants to be more skillful in managing others or running meetings more effectively, or a person wants to feel better about themselves or more patient in their family, whatever it is, we must begin with an experience. And then the second necessary step is the one that we typically forget. We must help that experience or that experience on its own must lead to a lasting physical change in the body, particularly in the brain. That second stage. So I, if you think of it, there's a famous saying, you know, it: neurons that fire together, wire together. So we have these two steps right there. It could be called activation installation, because I'm a sci-fi geek and techie guy, you know, and I love yeah. what you do and all that stuff. So I, to me, it's just very straightforward. It may seem really too mechanistic, is. but it is yeah. actually mechanistic in yeah. installation or moving from state to trait, state to trait. Say, say and this so again, from state so, to so trait, I, I, to, trait to be, becoming a repeated state, something that I'm capable Correct. Of. It becomes uh -huh. a part of you. And to put it in a Dharma framework. Uh, Milarepa, the Tibetan sage, had this lovely way of describing his own life of practice as he looked back on it toward the end of it. And this quotation actually comes, um, you know, from a translation from Stephen Batchelor. Basically, Milarepa looked back on his life of practice, and we can apply that to any this to anything as well that we're trying to develop. He said, "In the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left." That exactly. actually is a really, really good summary of what happens, huh? Yeah. And so in particular here, I'm talking about um, helping yourself to have experiences or just noticing useful ones in the first place. So something is coming. And then in the middle, it's not yet stable. It has not yet been internalized and turned into a trade. Nothing stays. You're able to experience it if you're prompted into it or you deliberately call it up. But it's not yet woven into your being. It's not kind of with you in the wallpaper of your mind wherever you go. And then by the end, nothing is left. You've moved into the trait. You've really developed you. trait, yeah, trait mindfulness, trait compassion, trait self-worth, trait skillfulness, trait patience. It becomes the only thing you can do. It becomes the easy way to go through life. Yeah, it's your default. It's who you are. And then but traits foster states, which then become opportunities to reinforce it as traits in a positive upward spiral. And so I've summarized this fundamental process, the two-stage process of developing and learning, which we can apply to anything we want to develop, anything we want to develop. And um, so I have this acronym, which I'll describe extremely briefly, HEAL, H-E-A-L, H stands for have a beneficial experience in the first place, usually because you just notice one you're having. I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. It's naturally occurring for me. And I'm... Oh, okay, great. And there's a nice sense of rapport with a very cool guy and, you know, and feeling mutual respect. It's really delightful. So I'm letting it sink in. I'm helping it really land. So I'm just noticing something that's already occurring. Or alternately, maybe later today, um, I'll deliberately call up some kind of experience to deal with a challenge I've got of some kind, let's say with an email or something. So either way, you're getting a good song playing in your inner iPod, but then you turn on the recorder. So you move into the installation phase 
which has two aspects to it, enriching and absorbing. E for enriching, A for absorbing. Enriching simply means helping the experience last, helping it be big, feeling it in your body. Uh, if you like, recognizing what's fresh or new about it. The brain is a novelty detector. Also recognizing, if you like, what's personally relevant about it. We learn from experiences that are salient, that are personally meaningful and relevant. So you enrich it, you make it be big. And then in absorbing, in effect, you're sensitizing the memory-making machinery by getting a sense of receiving into yourself the experience, intending to receive it, intending to budge around it, to let it in, and focusing on what is rewarding about it, what feels good about it or is meaningful, because that will heighten activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain if you flag or heighten the reward value in an experience. And all this sounds kind of complicated. And I, you know, I described the actual details of it that you can actually do inside yourself to become a super learner. Because obviously learning is the superpower of super hours. It's the one we use to develop the rest of them. So that's the essence of the process. But in the moment, to keep it really simple, if you're experiencing something you want to learn from, you know, you want to help yourself be a little more skillful with your spouse the next time, let's say, or you want to let a feeling of, of spiritual insight during meditation really land or whatever it is, Right. Stay with the experience for a breath or longer. Keep the neurons firing together so they wire together. Feel it in your body. The more embodied an experience, lots of research on this, the more we're going to tend to um, take it in and learn from it. And also focus on what's rewarding about it, what feels good about it or what is meaningful. Uh, that simple process I just described right there, these three separate ways to heighten internalization, to heighten neuroplastic change. And everything I'm saying is plausible here. It's supported by research in various areas. While I also want to acknowledge there's been shocking little, shockingly little research on how people can be active agents of their social-emotional learning. I'm using social-emotional broadly, which would include any kind of procedural learning, any kind of motivational learning, attitudinal learning, and so forth. Um, you know, there's been shocking little research about that. And my hope is that my own work will foster more research in this, this territory. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the process I've just described, have, enrich, and absorb, is the fundamental process of self-directed neuroplasticity, to use the term that Jeffrey Schwartz coined some years ago in his work at UCLA. Yeah. And then the L to finish stands for link. If you want, and it's very useful for healing, you can associate deliberately in your mind at the same time two things, the mm -hmm. positive, and I'll call it the negative. So prominently, you could have, as I did many times myself, in the foreground of awareness, a feeling of being of value, of worth, you know, respectable, lovable, likable, wantable, in the foreground of awareness. And then off to the side, you could, you could have old feelings of worthlessness, let's say, or being left out, or being unseen, you know, dismissed, you know, the runt of the litter as it were, a saying from my dad who grew up on a ranch in North Dakota. <laughs> he was born in 1918, a while ago, no longer with us. And so in so doing, because neurons that fire together wire together, by being aware of the positive and keeping it big and the negative so-called that the positive is matched to, it's an mm. antidote of sorts to it. Mm. it you know, it's matched to, to balance it. balance it out, yeah. Yeah, then uh, the positive can contextualize, ease, soothe, and even eventually replace the negative. It's like using flowers to uproot weeds in the garden of your mind. 
So that's the heal process. The, 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 L, the L is quite a delicate process, though. So you, 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 op, you often say it's optional. But yeah. it's quite delicate because while you're in that positive uh, uh, state of being, to bring mm. in the negative is something that you have to do very delicately. You're bringing in the negative yeah. not, to, not to oppose the positive, but Correct. to be sort of wiped out clean by yeah. the positive. And that's a very, very sensitive Oh, you're very astute uh, about I, I that. I love your work. I love well, you'd be a very good therapist. You're a natural. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I need to work on me first. <laughs> well, you can be therapeutic. I'm sure you're therapeutic. <laughs> I, I tend to be. So I, I want to go to, to the HEA first. So, so that yeah. have the experience, yep. uh, enrich it, and absorb it. What happens in our modern world is that we become experienced junkies. We don't go to the, to the you know, enrich and absorb. And that basically right. makes us uh, lose the absolute value, the essence, the true, true good that is in the experience. Well, why, why, why do you think we go that way? And what do you think we should do to change that? Well, I think you're really flagging a deeply important point that very often people are having experiences that are obviously self-evidently beneficial. They are uh, useful, enjoyable, or both. It's self-evident. And often these are experiences that people long for, like people long to be seen and appreciated and acknowledged. But isn't it common that very often when that kind of witnessing and valuing that's quite sincere, it's not a con job, it's not a manipulation on the part of the other person, whoever it might be, how it comes to us and we bat it away or we turn away from it. Uh, we don't actually rest with it or take it in. Or we get something done at work. We accomplish something hard and we go, oh, okay. And then boom, we're on to the next item on our to-do list. Yeah. Before, so we're con we might well be experiencing one beneficial thing after another, but we're dislodging it so quickly uh, in short-term memory buffers before it has time to sink down into and get consolidated into long-term storage. And it's really quite poignant. And we're left with the metaphor, uh, if not the actuality of the hell realm in Tibetan Buddhism, of the land of the hungry ghosts, which I think really describes modern culture so much, consumer culture, beings with, in some sense, godlike powers, with enormous appetites represented by vast bellies that can be satisfied only through a pinhole of a mouth. It's a hell realm. And I think a lot of people are kind of caught up in that, always chasing the next experience, the next shiny object, but not internalizing that, receiving it when they finally get to it. And that then breeds a certain discontent. I mean, these tendencies can obviously be manipulated by a consumerist-oriented culture to keep people mm -hmm. wanting the next thing. And that's why I think it's very important to help ourselves stand against that stream and to say enough is enough. And to appreciate that both, it's a very important point. We can still aspire and dream big dreams and be ambitious and determined and even committed to things like social justice, a world that's prosperous and just for everyone, not just for the few. We can aspire in those ways while feeling content along the way. And that's a very important point. There's this myth that somehow you'll lose your edge if you feel contented. Actually, there's all kinds of evidence that as people feel content and they, they kind of rest in a resilient well-being in their core, they actually become 
high achievers. They become the superstars. Getting all stressed out and driven is a good short-term strategy. And, you know, I've been there. If you need to get through grad school or, you know, the first year of your kid's life or a tough quarter in, in work, all right. But year after year, you can't sustain it. You're going to wear down. And the magic of creativity and vision and possibility and agility, which is so needed these days in a modern business world, a VUCA environment, right? Mm-hmm. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, da-da, a VUCA world. You know, not resting in an underlying sense of resilient well-being in your core will wear down your capacity to really achieve at your highest level, as well as make you suffer along the way. Yeah. I think, I think it works against us this way, but it also is almost like we're wired. We're, we're hitting ourselves twice. And I And I want to get to a certain point that also is a big part of your work. But the idea here is that by not letting the experience sink in, I'm letting all of the positives go while the machine is actually wired with the negativity bias to let the positives go. The the machine, the biology that we are, the the brains that we have are not even designed to remember the positive at all. They want to remember the negatives and we're helping them by seeking, by, by actually getting an incredibly positive experience and then letting it go quickly to chase the next and the next and the next. So let's talk about negativity bias. I think that's really important for people to understand. It doesn't seem that our brain is our friend really, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you know, as people say, we have a stone age brain in the 21st century armed with nuclear weapons, living in ways that are completely odd departures from our hunter gatherer (laughs) template. And by the way, Thanks for letting me rant there a little bit, and I'll I'll try to be I more succinct. It. No, don't don't at all. We're, <laughs> as long as you don't kick me out after a specific amount of time, and we keep chatting, we'll uh, we'll go on. <laughs> so, well, you're right about on the one hand the poignancy of in effect leaving all that money on the table. Exactly that we do all the time. Yeah, so much we're having comes your way, and you leave it on the. Yeah, yeah, we don't we don't take it in. There's no return on investment. We we let it flow right through us. Let all that gold dust pass through our fingers. Pick your metaphor, and it's very poignant. Actually, it's really poignant. And I want to be crystal clear that as we truly internalize, we crave less. As people fill themselves up with authentic, realistic experiences amidst the challenges and difficulties of the world they become more able to deal with the problems, the hard things in life. So for me, this is not at all about positive thinking, rose-colored glasses, or fake it till you make it, or look on the bright side. It actually comes from a very clear-eyed perspective. Recall my stories, you know, my origin stories of my own childhood. To deal with the crud, we need to grow the good inside ourselves. And we grow the good by experiencing it and internalizing it. So there's a very clear-eyed, you know, perspective here about this that is in that is enhanced by what by the point you just made about the negativity bias. The brain is designed, as I put it, to be like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And just that, that it's actually statement is what introduced me to you, by the way. Oh, it is. So, oh, so it's I, interesting. I, I found your work through that statement, and then I stuck. 
Okay. So. Uh, uh, you, you were like Velcro in a good way. And what's interesting is that over time, we can actually sensitize the brain. There's growing evidence for this that's, you know, that's kind of scattered, but I think it's reasonably plausible. We can actually develop a brain that is increasingly is like Velcro for good experiences, for beneficial yeah. and useful ones, and increasingly like, like Teflon for negative experiences. We feel them, but they don't invade the mind and remain. You know, they slide through us and they move off of us and we don't identify with them. And one of the most useful things, I think, for people in general is to appreciate the negativity bias. Because we have a brain, as you say, it's not so much, I would say that it's not a friend. It has multiple capacities, but it's designed for peak performance in Stone Age conditions, in hunter-gatherer times in which there, it was critically important to learn from any negative experience if you survived it. Uh-huh. to avoid it in the future. Positive experiences, beneficial experiences are different back in the Stone Age because if you don't get that carrot today, let's say, you'll have a chance at it tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, you're that saber tooth, you're done. Yeah. You're out. Yeah. You're done. Game over. You know, just yeah. like in game, like playing games, you know, like, oh, sorry, you, you died. You know, yeah. except, no <laughs> except in the, back in the Stone Age, you don't get to just reboot and just do it again with Perfect. a little bit yeah. of learning to avoid yeah. that bad boss the next time, right? Exactly. And, and so we've got a brain and people can track this in their experience that's designed biologically to do five things. Search for bad news out in the world, but also inside your body and mind. Scan for problems, scan for threats, scan for losses, scan for betrayal, right? Look for bad news. Second, when you find it, Overfocus upon it. There's a lot of research that talks about how we develop tunnel vision around negative stuff, problems or threats, or that angry frown in a business meeting or across a dinner table. And then third, overreact to it. We react more to negative than to equally intense positive, where people are more uptight about losing than gaining an equivalent amount, right? That's Daniel Kahneman's work on loss aversion and so forth. And then fourth, we over-remember the negative. It's fast-tracked, once burned, twice shy. So for example, in interaction, in relationships, one negative interaction will tend to have much more effect than multiple positive interactions. That's why we need to have a quantity effect for positive interactions in our important relationships from the perspective of the other person. That's a real key takeaway. So we overlearn from the negative. And then fifth, we've got a brain that gradually gets sensitized to the negative through the stress hormone cortisol, as well as other mechanisms. But that's a primary mechanism because when we're irritated or exasperated or driven or anxious or blue, we release stress hormones. And one of them, cortisol, moves up into the brain and sensitizes the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, while at the same time weakening a nearby part of the brain, the hippocampus, that regulates the amygdala, calms it down, and also puts things in perspective, the hippocampus does, and it also tells the hypothalamus, enough stress hormones already, quit calling for more. This creates a vicious cycle in which stressful, upsetting, quote-unquote negative experiences today make us a little more sensitive a little more prickly, a little more cranky. Yeah, a little more vulnerable to a slump of mood tomorrow so that then we're a little more prone to negative experiences tomorrow, which make us even a little more vulnerable the day after that in a a negative downward vicious cycle uh, spiral. So that's the reality of our brain. And so for me, the takeaway is really simple. Mm -hmm. Deal with the bad. Deal with it. Resource yourself to deal with it so you don't have to marinate in it deal with it, don't marinate in it, 
while also turning to the good. Yeah. What is also true? And then take in the good. Deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. That really summarizes a lot of practice right there. Well, we all knew that this conversation between me and one of my idols, Rick Hansen, is going to take more than one episode. So come join us next time where I intend to actually tap into his knowledge to get us into a neuroscience 101 and understand how the brain really, really works. We'll try to talk about one of my favorite views of his work, which is the idea of the three evolutions of the brain, if you want, the three parts of the brain. And we will talk about the qualities of those people who are far along down that path of enlightenment. I hope you're enjoying slow-mo as much as I'm enjoying recording it. Find me on social media and tell me what you think. I am Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, M Gaudet on Twitter, and mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. You can also find all of my work on YouTube slash for Happy. Do me a favor and spread the word. Please rate this podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already done so. Share the message on social media and tell your friends what you learn. I know you have a million and a half things to do on daily basis, but remember, there's always that tiny bit of time that you can spare to slow down. Thank you so much for the alibi that you give me to meet so many amazing people. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.